Oh, cat's already out of the bag. I thank you for choosing Tox News. Your only source into the right-wing detoxifying process center? Welcome to my factory. Uh, not to beat around the bush today, we're getting right into a little bit of highlight from Trump because immediately after making his triumphant return to his long-lost herd at CPAC, he is now allowed to go on all media outlets that will have him and speak his truth, which his truth has not changed very much since he left, so there's that. Um, I did cover for about five hours, unfortunately, of CPAC, and I think about an hour and a half of it was actually Trump. Um, so if you want the full speech, uh, I will fix on editing that up. Um, but there's also five hours worth of nonsensical, uh, left-wing copium going on. Um, but I guess just dive right in. I got one other segment coming specially from PragerU. They spent a lot of time on this. I can tell they created a whole new phrase just for them. So, I don't remember the host of Revolution here, but immediately after returning to the flock, uh, Trump um, just goes on his, you know, I, I think he even kind of comes on this show just to give like little bits and pieces, just in case you missed him speaking for an hour and a half yesterday. He offers this 14 minutes here to get you, you know, caught up back on track. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. The Republican Party is Trump. That's that's what I pulled away from. Um the whole CPAC and everything like that. And um, a lot of talk of like Republicans being rhinos, which are uh, apparently people who either criticized Trump or uh, voted to do the, I don't know, the witnesses or the, the, the whole impeachment thing. Anybody that wasn't necessarily a hundred percent backing Trump is now referred to as a rhino, which I'm not sure how that's inherently bad. Rhinos are very tough skin, massive horns, pretty badass i don't know why that's a negative term um so let's let's just get into into his highlights um yeah 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 president donald brain Trump. farts delicious Mr. President, great to have you join us this evening big day for you at cpac how do you think it went oh yeah before he gets into that i usually do militia watch on mondays but they have not dropped it and that happens from time to time so it's probably going to be a Militia Watch Wednesday. Um, I really wish I had some Militia Watch in my eyeballs right now, but it is what it is. So this is going to be a quick, you know, go-getter here episode. Oh, jeez. Well, it's great to be with you, Steve. I think it went really well, the, the crowd, the enthusiasm, and uh, even outside the numbers of people and that enthusiasm. It was great. It was really a great day. Amazing. Um, I want to talk about some of the things you said in the speech in a moment and, and, and the future that you sketched out. But just a couple of I'd love your reaction to a couple of things that have been in the news. Just your quick reactions to that. One of the things you mentioned today was the Abraham Accords, of course, the Middle East peace deals that that you brokered. Right. A big part of that was your strong relationship with Saudi Arabia. It's interesting that. Um, Biden, despite what he said in the campaign, has basically decided not 
to do anything about Crown, the Crown Prince in relation to the Jamal Khashoggi case. And I just wonder whether this is an instance where, with Biden prioritizing, it seems, the Saudi relationship over human rights, this is one area where you actually think he's done the right thing. Were they not a part of the Abraham Accords? Because if I'm not mistaken, them being a part of it, you don't want to upset the ally who we've been selling arms to through the entire Trump presidency. Um, and I, I think the, the, the Hellfire missile going into the Yemeni school bus was... No, that was Trump era. I thought it was Obama era. Obama hit a Yemeni's wedding, though. Um, where was I going to go with this? Um, if the Saudi Arabia was in that deal... Oh, let's see here. Abraham Accords. It's a very strange way to put up that question. I think he was really hoping for a chance to um, get a gotcha on Biden there, but um, I think that's interesting. Israel, United Arab Emirates. I don't think the United Arab Emirates is a part of, or Saudi Arabia is a part of it, but you never know with a brain as small as mine. This is an American manufactured brain, so sometimes we got to step out of our box and do some, you know, self-research and development here. Um, let's see. I guess there's seven countries involved, and so far I am not seeing the Saudi Arabia. We got seven embassies. Uh, Abu Dhabi, Dubai. Sharjah. Oh, I haven't even heard of a lot of these countries. Um, um al Kawain. If I didn't get that wrong. Fujar. Oof. Fujera. Ajman. And Razal. Kaima. Wow. Like those last one, two, three, four, five uh, nations, which make up a, a whole ass United Arab Emirates. I have no idea about them. Severely uneducated on uh, geopolitics and the world around me. But anyways, Saudi Arabia not included. Let's see what that really has to do with anything beyond the fact that, you know, Trump was selling them arms the entire time as well during his presidency, while they were also forming these accords and uh, also assisting Israel and other things. Well, Saudi Arabia has been an ally of ours and they've... Uh really been a very strong ally, and they spend a tremendous amount of money in the United States buying equipment that they don't have to buy from us. We make the best equipment by far, but they could buy it from Russia. They could buy it from China. They could buy it from France or other people that make equipment like they want to buy. And, you know, we're talking about $400 billion over a period of years. And unlike a lot of countries, uh, we don't give it free. And uh, they actually pay their bills. So, you know, it's tremendous numbers of jobs. It's uh, a big, big purchaser. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have to look at that along with everything else. It's unfortunate that the whole incident took place, but we have to look at it uh, as an overall. <laughs> and I think, they're, you know, it's unfortunate that Washington Post journalist was murdered while visiting another country. But we really have to focus in on our relations with these countries. We have to put aside the idea of a free press when we're talking about selling billions of dollars of guns, you see. This is an American first policy that somehow benefits the rest of us by selling a bunch of guns and Hellfire missiles to the Saudi Arabian government. And it seems like that today Biden also agrees with President Donald Trump. Beautiful. They're viewing it maybe in a similar fashion. Very interesting, actually.
Yeah, I, that's what I thought. And, uh, but there's another area where it's very different kind of approach to the one that you laid out today. That's on the border. I just want to um, uh, just just. I like how he, he pivots now because this is where they can start hitting Biden where it hurts right here because they generally agree on pushing Khashoggi's death on a bunch of fall guys rather than holding the head of the government responsible for those actions so that they can keep selling arms. But now that they've come to that agreement rather than dunking on Biden, who made the same exact choice that Donald Trump probably would as well. Let's move into immigration that way. That way we got him. We'll get him. Reference a, a news report last week, Axios was reporting on this, the HHS officials are saying that the February numbers of children separated from the families at the border are the highest in the history of the program and, and CBP yep. officials are now projecting that by May there will be 13,000 children separated from their families at the border way more than anything that occurred on your watch. And my question to you is, do you think that in the end, they'll end up copying your border policy, if only on humanitarian grounds? I mean, I wonder if they would, but like Trump's specific zero tolerance policy is what split it up families is because they all went under a criminal charge and that remain that means removing the family. So he didn't have to necessarily charge every asylum seeker in the in the manner that he did. I think it was a cruel policy in order to deter people from thinking that America is a good place to go to. Um, and the unfortunate thing is, is that 13,000 isn't going to be from the built up of uh, Biden's policies like i don't know what biden's gonna do about the zero zero tolerance i haven't heard him do anything about it um but the the, the crux of the issue is, is that this has been building since the migrant caravans have been coming um and the usual average detainment within these detention centers range between two to four years so this is a in an event that's not happening in a vacuum, we're not going to pretend that 2018's caravan didn't happen, or was it 20? It was 2019. I apologize. We're not going to pretend that like the 30,000 uh, asylum seekers who came here with their families ripped apart have nothing to contribute to the numbers that Biden is going to have to be accountable for at this point, because it's certainly a part of Donald Trump's cruelty that led to the situation now. And so you kind of have to wonder, you know, those immigrants or asylum seekers who are eventually going to come if we're not even accepting applications right now we're actually just dealing with the amount of people that we have here um so even if they were to bring children at that point hopefully the zero tolerance policy isn't still up and the children can be processed with their guardians or uh, parents so this is bad framing ignoring four years of his own policies well, that I can't tell you, but I do know that this open mat policy that they have and come on up and uh, share in the share in the riches. It's been a disaster. People are coming up. They're pouring up from the borders. The people that are being brought into the country at this point are the people who have been there since Trump's presidency. These are the, the 26,000 number that we're getting isn't from uh, Biden just immediately opening the doors to like the first people who walked up like this is actually the process of the amount of like, asylum seekers and immigrants that we've had. And even so, like a lot of asylum processing isn't really helping and it's mostly like work visas. So um, again, like exaggerating the point to make the empire sound as evil as it possibly can be while this fake rebel alliance sounds like it's the bastion saving all of your jobs because dirty drought dirty brown people aren't taking them safe and 
like we haven't seen before. And I think you've seen nothing yet. It's going to be more and more with you free health care and uh, free everything. You get free everything, things that, that nobody would believe. Education, you see what's going on. They have education and they have schools uh, or classrooms, yeah. at least. I don't know if you'd call them formal schools. And in the meantime, we can't we won't educate our own children in class. They have to do it by a computer, which is terrible for our children. Terrible. It's really terrible for children, like especially early ages to not, you know, especially during a pandemic when people are like stressed out from that. But like social interactions in school, doing that is an important thing. Not going to lie about it. But learning on school, learning on a website in the comfy of comfort of your own home is not less than learning in a detention center with a bunch of other kids waiting to be processed with like. I don't know, slightly improving conditions, barely slightly just now. So um, not not anything to brag about. The immigrants don't have an advantage of us because we're giving them an education in their detention centers. It's unbelievable. And you spoke so strongly about that today, which I know I mean, I'm so with you on that. Um, there's one there's so, so much that I want to get to in your speech. We don't have a huge amount of time. One thing it was a small thing, but I really appreciated it based on on my experience working in government when you were telling the story of how you ended up pushing forward Operation Warp Speed so we have the vaccines today in a way that no one ever predicted. And you specifically said... That's why I think this is like seriously just a highlight of all the things that he's already said rather than even like focusing on specific issues today because you can't really do it with a other president, like the president being in office for four weeks. There's not like a lot you can criticize and, and dig into on him. You have to talk about what you did successfully and remind people of the good old days. But the thing about like um, him getting credit for this Operation Warp Speed is that it's dumb because it's just deregulating. It, it's allowing the process of doing trials for medication or vaccines to move quicker. That's not something necessarily to be proud about. You just pulled back restrictions. Good for you. You signed a piece of paper. Well done. You know, you really had to fight the FDA and they didn't like it, but you made them do it. That... Um attitude to take on the bureaucracy seems to be key to getting things done in government. I just wondered if you had... There wasn't much restriction to Operation Warp Speed. I think for the most part, it was bipartisan support. So putting up the idea that he fought for the fought for the vaccine and how quickly it came out is just like, I don't know, creating a myth around him and putting him on a high horse. You know, he, he went through with his red tie and said, the vaccines are coming. The vaccines are coming. Had any other examples legend. of of how you did that to make things happen? Well, there are many examples, and you take a look at what's happening with the military spending and some of the things I've done with regard to getting things at a lesser price. And unfortunately, we have uh, elements that, you know, they were ordered a long time ago, and the cost overruns have been horrific. But when you look at warp speed, when you look at Operation Warp Speed, now I was very strong with the, F if the FDA, and the FDA is... You know, strong body of people. Most of them have been there a long time. They're very much ingrained, and uh, they have a way of doing things. And people thought it would take at least five years to get a vaccine, and I would not have it. And I had meetings, and I went through the process of what you have to do. And, mm -hmm. you know, one other oh thing, God, we, we took so a risk. Difficult. It was, I think, an educated bet. But we started making vaccines before we knew whether or not they were going to really work. We had a pretty good idea that they were going to. But that would have delayed it for months if we didn't do that. And we put our money where the mouth was or where our mouth was, and we got vaccines made and 
made very, very early. And if you think about it, the whole process took nine months. And this was something that was supposed to take, as you know, four or five years. And I think the outcome would have been different. I think what we did, we put up research money and research and development money, which I don't think the drug companies would have done without us. And uh, we came up with a vaccine, and it's being credited with as being one of the great miracles of medicine. It saved, uh, you know, we, we talk about the number of lives. I think it saved just tens of millions of lives throughout the world. It's been a tremendous success, and the vaccines are really working. Exactly. Maybe even better than anticipated. It's really funny for him to brag how, like, the vaccines coming out as quickly as they did could, like, could possibly save tens of millions of lives around the world, and yet we're still sitting with, like, the highest death count in all of the world and the highest infection rate uh, in the entire world. So, like, I don't know. It, America being the role model of this whole thing, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit right doesn't really fit right the idea that we were so reckless with our own population actually puts the rest of the planet at risk because like i've said uh the 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 virus being able to spread gets more chances to have variants and mutate like it's not a good thing where we're at and uh they're getting out there we got them out very fast we're up to a million five a day and uh we are very proud of that that's been a tremendous achievement well right rightly there's no way that like Anybody should look at President Trump handling the the, the pandemic at all. They're like nobody should give him credit other than you know responsibility for all the 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 laissez fairness of it. Like the fifteen days to slow the spread and a month long you know federal shutdown. Like that was just real peanuts in comparison to like all of our statistics. Like there's nothing to brag about it so long as we sit on the top of these charts with the infection rate and death rate. Um, you know at least we can say that. Unlike the UK, we resuscitate uh, those with uh, neurodivergence uh, conditions. So that's that's one thing we could brag about if we had something. So, and, I, and it was just so outrageous, frankly, to see the incoming Biden administration basically dismiss all that. And I, you must have been pleased to see Admiral Brett Giroir really push back on that. The other day, he said 99% of what's happening now with the vaccines was what we put in place. Yeah, and I would only disagree because I would have said 100 percent. And by the way, he's fantastic. <laughs> he's, he did a great job. And we had others in the military, as you know, uh, when you look at the uh, logistics, we call it logistics. That's what it was. We had that all set up so beautifully and it worked so well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just automatically just gets better and better. And, you know, we rely on states, but not exclusively. And uh, we're working together with states. Some states do. I could write a book on the ones that do. I just want to remind everybody, too, that Trump had uh, chose to buy less of the Pfizer vaccine than he was originally offered, which I don't know why you would do that when you're initially offered 200 million vaccines before the rollout. Um, why wouldn't you do that? Why would you reduce it to 100 million? Um, it seems like, you know, you want to kind of get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. So it's a weird choice to do it like that. And it's also weird to take 100% credit for everything that's going on. While I can probably say that not a lot of Biden's policies have had much effect with us being four weeks in. Do good and the governors that do good and the governors that do badly. I mean, we- it's, on, it's, on, it's like somehow he's also the president of like 10 years ago. It's fucking weird. We have some governors that are just atrocious. But 
despite all of that, uh, the work is getting done, and it's being done in record mm-hmm. time. And we're helping other countries besides that, which is very important. That's right. Fairness. That's right. It's not just here. It's around the world. I want to shift um, to, to the more political aspects of what you talked about today um, okay. and your future role. You made it clear you are not going to be starting a new party. You want Republicans to be united and to win. Let's talk about the next election coming up, the midterms in 2022. Okay. You announced today that you're going to be getting involved, backing candidates. I had one question there, which is if Ron and McDaniel, who seems to me is doing a terrific job, says to you, look, a couple of the people that you may want to support through primaries, they re- you know, they're really strong in their districts. We don't want to take them out because then the seat might go to the Democrats. Would you listen to her on that? I would. I have a lot of respect for Rana. She's been terrific. She headed up my Michigan campaign the first time, which was very, very successful. It was very successful the second time also, by the way. I think probably more successful. I mean, here they're mostly even talking about, like, Trump's power to help decide who the candidates for, like, the the Republican Party for however rest of time this is going to go on. Um, So he's he's literally the party and he is going to back candidates and be very vocal on candidates to get his uh, more allies in his office before either him or Ron DeSantis uh, take office. But uh, she was she's terrific. And no, I would listen to that. You know, there's a practicality there's an electability like that's why they're looking at 2022 for trump to like highlight all of these candidates so that if either trump or his like little miniature you know florida version of him goes to washington they're going to be surrounded by all of these people who are also willing to feed into narratives that are like systemic voter fraud or invasion of caravans or russian hoax and other witch hunts and all of these things that we've having been dealing with the fake news is not literally going anywhere so long as it keeps getting projected from the people who hold positions of power. Thank you. This has been my TED Talk. Uh, there's a lot of things to go into a decision, but we also have some great people that want to run for office from a lot of different states, and Michigan's one of them, frankly. But uh, no, I, I definitely mm-hmm. would listen to a lot of people. And By the way, seems to me the that... whole uh, incident, Steve, yeah. of uh, starting another party was fake news. You know, that was started up by the fake news. And this is like one of Trump's favorite techniques is that he'll say something to people and because it doesn't go into like a, you know, video recording or audio recording, like an official said Trump said this. And if he doesn't like what, you know, comes out, he just says that it's fake news. Like the same thing when he said he asked if they could shoot a nuke in a hurricane. I totally I would buy that. He he asked one of his officials of whether or not they can nuke a hurricane for sure. He asked like in front of everybody because at some points he lit- literally loses control, gets off the cuffs, invincible and turns around and asks, maybe we can look into bleaching people like in- injecting them with bleach that happened on TV. And then later, because it was recorded. No, that was sarcasm. That was sarcasm. The last thing I want to do is start another party. All you do is make it easier for the Democrats and we have, you know, exactly. certain disadvantages in terms of uh, things that are done. And the reason why I could see Trump saying that he would want to start a party is so that he could get the media stir up to scare the GOP into thinking that his representation is the most important thing, which he then proved at CPAC, like very much proved it. And the way they're done when you compare Democrats with Republicans to start off with. No, I think we uh, I would never I would never. Even I would never be interested in another party. We have, other than some particular people, 
we have great unity in the party. And I think you see that at CPAC today. You see the polls, 90, you saw the 97% poll. And mm -hmm. uh, Mr. McLaughlin, who's terrific, that's a terrific uh, brother, a brother tandem, he said these are the best polls that they've ever seen, uh, even stronger than Ronald Reagan polls, by a lot, actually, but it was 97%. Yeah. So the last thing we want to do is let's split it up. Whether it be 70%, 80%, or 90%, you can't lose 10% and be successful. So the last thing I would have done, I would never have yeah. done another party, and that was purely fake news, you know, put out there by the, yeah, it by the press. It has it on there, if you another haven't seen the CPAC, is that they did a poll there, and Trump had a 97% approval rating from the people that they asked at CPAC. Uh, the, the, the whole presentation, too, is also like to convince people that Trump is, is the guy, the guy. He's that guy. Another po poll that I was interested in, we're going to be showing this later, actually, is um, I've seen some people out there saying, well, CPAC isn't the Republican Party, and, and therefore you can't uh, assume that their support for you translates across the party. Actually, there was a poll that was done last week, and the support for you in running in 2024 is literally the same number. So I don't know. It seems to me that all this talk of Republican civil war is another example of a story that's not really real. It feels to me like the agenda that you laid out really is the one that the overwhelming majority of Republicans are now behind. I mean, there are tens of thousands of, uh, you know, uh, Republicans leaving, like voters leaving states, um, like, or they're, they're, you know, within certain states, there's tens of thousands of people leaving the Republican Party because of the insurrection. But yeah, I don't see like the entire party quite leaving the Trump bandwagon. Um, the media is not going to Well, see if they want... Great trade deals, not these horrible deals that we've had for years where the United States get ripped, gets ripped off. You look at, you know, we were losing 504 or 505 billion, not million, billion dollars a year with China. And I started taking in massive amounts of hundreds of millions of dollars in tariffs and lots of other things. And business was coming back. Mm -hmm. and the one thing they hated were those tariffs. But, uh, you know, they, they want to have the strangers. They want to have strong military. They want to have strong law enforcement. They want to protect their Second Amendment. They want great education. They want health care. You know, I mean, these are all things that you would think are almost common sense. But, but uh, you know, we're, we're really – I think CPAC is representative very much of the Republican Party. I really do. I, and the people yeah, well, that's the data country. suggests that, yeah. Yeah, I think I really do. I think it's uh, I think it's very accurate in that sense. So um, yeah. let's look ahead uh, yeah, beyond 2022, 2024. Um, I'm not expecting any kind of announcement from you. No one is for a while. Um, but you're a numbers guy. Uh, you teased it a few times today in your speech. <laughs> Would you put a number on the chances that you you're going to want to run again for the presidency next time? Well, if you look at what just came out of the Republican Party and even... I would say that they're judging it by ear because in four years, Trump is going to be as old as Biden is now. And who knows if he'll actually still have the same neurological capability that he does now. Um, you know, there, a lot can happen in four years, but I wouldn't doubt that if he felt capable enough. Here we go again. Even separately, CPEC, you know, uh, if you if you look at the kind of numbers, the support is tremendous, but... We'll have to see. Look, uh, I got more votes than any sitting president in history, almost 75 million votes. Mm -hmm. uh, we had statistics that are so... In <laughs> Which is funny, mo or the most votes out of most people 
who have been in elections like that's funny because he lost that one even though he had like the so-called most votes credible with the number of seats that we picked up in congress and that was done largely and i worked with a lot of different people but i was very active between the the calls and the town yeah. hall meetings and all of the things we did we lost no seats in Congress, and we picked up 15, and we were expected to lose 20 or 25 seats. I mean, we were they were thinking we were going to lose 20, 25 seats, and we ended up picking up 15. That was a tremendous success. Uh, I think I helped at least 8 to 10 senators get elected. You'd be down 10 right now if I, I didn't get involved, and they understand that. And I have great relationships with most of the senators. We have some— that I'm not very fond of. We have some that I think are not good, not talented, not smart, and they're bad for the party. I think they're frankly bad for the country. Uh, but, you know, that is what it is. I guess that's not so unusual. I do say this. If the Democrats mm -hmm. are smart. They're vicious. They're very vicious. They're, you know, the, the, what they say and what they do is just uh, terrible. And they have... Yeah, there was a lot of like anti-left talk at CPAC in general. And uh, at this point, it's a little dehumanizing uh at the point that trump's doing it right now and uh that's the kind of rhetoric that i think leads to uh terrible civil discourse amongst the rest of us so if you can you know plug your ears whenever trump starts talking about liberals that would probably help the country a little bit one other thing that is very admirable and i wish republicans had more of it the democrats you never see a mitt romney going rogue, which you see him all the time, or a little Ben Sass of Nebraska, great state, great people. How this guy even represents them is just crazy. He wanted my endorsement so badly. Uh, the moment he got through the primaries with my endorsement, uh, he goes rogue, you know, which I sort of expected, frankly, because you got to know the, your customer. But uh, you, you take a look at some of the people. So, look, uh, Democrats don't seem to have that. They stick together. And what they don't have, though, is they have... They don't have good policy. They have horrible policy, whether it's... I think the unfortunate thing is, is that there is a divide in the uh, Democratic Party. There's a good amount of progressives in the House and Senate, and they are not quite... Uh, they don't have enough clout to actually uh, push establishment Democrats to get shit done, but uh, enough to actually show that the party is not quite unified. Defund the police or open borders or sanctuary cities, which is protecting all sorts of criminals and people that shouldn't be protected and people that cause lots of problems. So they have horrible policy. So they're vicious and smart and they stick together, but they have horrible policy. And the policy, I think, really more than makes up for it. I think we're going to have a tremendous success. Fuck the left. Fuck the left. If you fuck the left, you're Republican. All right. Prager you. Let's wrap it up here. Let's take it home. Um, I had to do this one because I love the word socialism. I love the idea of socialism. And so when I heard that there was a new socialism in town called Identity Socialism, and Prager you was going to take tell me, um, I'm I'm totally down. I'm down. There's a new socialism in town. I call it identity socialism. The old socialism the kind Karl Marx dreamed up was all about the working class, the sort of blue-collar worker who, ironically, voted for President Trump. But today's socialists couldn't care less about the guy in the... Um, you know, Trump did have uh, blue-collar support, sure, but uh, most of his voters were actually wealthier 
for sure uh for sure that like he actually has more wealthy uh votes than biden does um and he actually did pretty well in the in the middle class not to say that the middle class isn't too uh blue collar but i think what we're focusing on here is people below the middle class hard hat he had his chance at revolution and blew it today's socialist is all about race gender and transgender rights class um yes yes today's socialism is about race gender and transgender rights but the thing is, is that socialism has always been about race gender and transgender rights in fact it's been very focused on uh, human rights in general throughout history. And if you really don't believe me, you can go back to the Black Panthers and their communist movement. Um, there was a lot of uh, socialist movements in America that were not founded by white people. And they were very well inclusive, but also recognized that without um, minorities having the same rights as everybody else, then it's not a egalitarian system. So that wouldn't necessarily be a good socialism without considering races gender and transgender people um but of course all of these people are also like it's all fundamentally a part of the working class so the working class makes the roots of socialism that builds the society around it so you can't have socialism without the working class and socialism being used to focus in on race gender and transgender equality even though it should just say race and gender equality um those are all essential too to socialism i don't know why he thinks that there's only one or three going there's three separate socialisms going on and they're forgetting about the working class when it's socialism is the working class that's it that's it this is an afterthought to understand this is to understand the left's takeover of the college campus and all the ills that takeover has spawned from me too to black lives matter to girls competing against by that's pretty funny that like that you know being educated doesn't really convince you into left-wing ideas it's these things that are indoctrinating you into left-wing ideas you're being brainwashed programmed you didn't reasonably come to these from the education that you received no it was purely propaganda biological boys but campus culture has now metastasized into the culture of the whole society because they graduate and then join the rest of us in regular society like they they don't leave society when they go to college their consciousness might change and their state of awareness might change because they're uh getting educated but uh the, they're always going to be a part of society and then after they graduate they're going to go into the job market and a lot of those job markets might be in uh leadership roles in, in certain areas what are, what are we talking about as liberal writer andrew sullivan has put it we all live on campus now Identity socialism is first and foremost about division, not just class division, but now race division, gender division, transgender division. What does he mean? Like that we're going to have different socialisms for each one and that they're going to be structured differently as if socialism doesn't deal with one economic system. That's that's very weird. It's very weird. Socialism is a unified economic system not something that okay now we have poor people socialism over here rich people socialism over there black people socialism over there white people socialism over there i don't i honestly don't even know what the fuck he's talking about blacks and latinos are in whites are out Win no 
No, I, I don't know where he's getting this. Sure, a lot of people are over abusing their power of making whites feel guilty of the past uh, tortures of this country. But the thing is, is that they haven't been pushed out of the socialist movement. So white working class people are just as important as everybody else when it comes to socialism. And whoever he's saying is saying this is obviously this boogeyman straw man that he's created to push this bullshit onto people. Pardon my French, but is genuinely frustrating when you use your your uh, platform to like purposefully and intentionally misrepresent things that could benefit people. Women are in, men are out. Gays, bisexuals, transsexuals, transgenders are in, heterosexuals are out. No, no. I'm mean, like they're not coming in in socialism's socialism is now the economic system, and that means heterosexuals cannot get married anymore. By decree of the all-supreme. No, that's not happening. Illegals are in. Native-born citizens are out. No. <laughs> One may think this is all part of the policy. They just, like, socialism just wants you to, if you fit into those categories that are supposedly out, they just want you to start being inclusive to the other people. That doesn't mean excluding your heter heteronormative life. It just means that your heteronormative life isn't everybody's life. Accept it. Politics of inclusion, but to think that is to get only half the picture. The point for the left is not merely to include, but also to exclude. So where did- I, I can't, I, I can't, I just argue that point and I'm not going to do it again. No, it's not. It's literally the ideology of inclusivity. Like capitalism feeds off exclusivity because if there's, if everybody was rich, then honestly, nobody would be rich then, right? There wouldn't be someone who has more money than the other person if we all had the same amount of money or at least the same amount of resources. So capitalism literally excludes people from joining country clubs and country clubs do it on purpose to make rich people feel better than poor people. This identity socialism come from? Meet Herbert Marcuse. Born in Berlin in 1898, Marcuse fled Germany at the dawn of the Nazi era. After stints at Columbia, Harvard, and Brandeis, Marcuse moved to California, where he joined the University of California at San Diego in 1965. You'd think that living in a paradise like Southern California, with all the comforts and privileges of academic life, might have softened Marcuse's Marx-like hatred of capitalism. But it was not to be. If anything, the more he prospered, the more he wanted to bring the system down. He had a problem. <laughs> it's so funny. He's like, he should have been happy. He was a wealthy white man in capitalism. But no, he wasn't. He thought of the others, the poles, and then decided, you know what? This shit is fucked up. Problem, however, a big Jesus. one. Socialism didn't work in America. It's so funny when they like hate on rich people because they don't like the the system of economics that made them rich. It's funny. It's very funny to me, because that that just perpetuates the idea that a billionaire should not be self aware of their hoarding of wealth hurts other people. America, life was too good. The working class in the U.S. didn't aspire to overthrow the existing order. They aspired to own a home. How could you foment revolution without revolutionaries? Classic Marxism had no answer for this. But almost a hundred years after Marx, Marcuse did. The answer was college students. They would be the recruits for what he termed the great refusal, the repudiation and overthrow of free market capitalism. That's because they receive an education that isn't like just propped on the idea of free market capitalism. They, they learn other answers. 
they learn about history and how there was uh, different answers during the 1940s to capitalism after the Great Depression. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just so weird to think that this is like a program to get uh, militant students rather than education genuinely convincing people into more empathetic systems. Conditions were perfect. The students of the 60s were already living in what was in effect a socialist commune, a university campus. Rather than being... Uh, no, a university campus, unfortunately, is not a socialist commune. Uh, if you're, if you're, uh, fucking campus had a subway or a Jimmy John's on it, that's not a socialist or a commune. Like the fact that you're also using money and not necessarily helping each other with mutual aid to get your resources. Like they have to pay for dorms. The colleges themselves are for profit. Now we're just making shit up. Grateful to their parents for providing them with this opportunity to learn. Oh, it's socialism because the parents paid for it. Oh, fuck. Fuck me, right? Learn and study, they were restless and bored. Most importantly, they were looking for meaning, a form of self-fulfillment that went beyond material gratification. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Of course, as with all successful social movements, timing was critical. Here, Marcuse was very fortunate. The 60s was the decade of the Vietnam War. Students faced the prospect of being drafted. Thus, they had selfish reasons to oppose the conflict. Marcuse and his oh, acolytes turned this selfishness into righteousness by teaching the students that they weren't draft dodgers, they were noble resistors who were part of a global struggle for social justice. Marcuse portrayed Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Cong as a kind of third world proletariat, fighting to free themselves from American imperialism. Are we going to not pretend that the Viet Cong weren't fighting against uh, American imperialism? Because I hate to break it to you, we were an invading force um essentially trying to get the idea that free market capitalism should uh be their economy we didn't allow them to decide for themselves we specifically got our nose in it for that reason so um are we not supposed to sympathize with the Viet Cong because we decided to invade them this represented a transposition of Marxist categories the new working class were the Vietnamese freedom fighters the working class is all around the globe. If 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 we're going to say that just because we we like some of them sympathize with the Vietnamese who are fighting an invasive invading force somehow excludes white people in America from being a part of the worldwide worker class revolution, dumb. That is dumb. The evil capitalists were American soldiers serving on behalf of the American government. Unfortunately, they were like these poor souls were drafted into this war too and got PTSD they never fucking asked for. Marcuse found in addition to the students other groups ripe for the taking. The first was the Black Power Movement which was a militant adjunct to the Civil Rights Movement. The beauty Ooh, Some of it. Are we going to ignore Martin Luther King right now? We're going to ignore the the peaceful side of it just to make Black Power sound really dangerous? Is that what is that what we're going with right now? Is that what we're doing? Is that, is that the turn you want to take? The hill you want to die on? The of this group, from Marcuse's point of view, was that unlike white students, its members wouldn't have to be instructed in the art of grievance. Blacks had grievances that dated back centuries. Through another Marxist transposition, blacks would become wow. the working class, whites the capitalist class. Wow. Race in this analysis <laughs> took the place of class. Another emerging source of disgruntlement was the... 
that during the black power movement they were fighting for the right to like go to the bathroom without being segregated to use a regular water fountain to go to a milkshake bar without having it poured on their heads to fucking get a job to vote so like of course whites are out at that point black people had less rights feminists. Marcuse recognized they too could be taught to see themselves as an oppressed Like shame on college for teaching students and coming out with left-wing shit, but God bless PragerU for making sure that we reverse all of that for everybody else who can't afford college. Class. This of course would require a further Marxist transposition. Women would now be viewed as the working class and men the capitalist class. Again, because that was when they were in positions of oppression, like they were being oppressed. Like this comes from the same exact time as the black power movement. Get in, get, like go hit a college and come back with some knowledge, bro. The class category would now be shifted to gender. Marcuse recognized- I haven't gone to college, by the way. I just, I like watching history videos on YouTube. You can do that too. Hey, all my broke proletariats, all the education you want is free on the internet. You can do it. That educating and mobilizing all these groups, the bored students, the aggrieved blacks, and the angry feminists would take. But for fuck's sake, don't watch one five minute video like all these PragerU people are doing. Watch as many videos on one subject as you can, become familiar with that subject. Don't get mad if you don't know everything that's going on in the entire globe. At least get to know certain subjects as thoroughly as you possibly can. And don't take in a five minute video that comes out every two to three days take time. But he wasn't in a hurry. Soon enough, the radical students would be the radical professors, teaching identity socialism to a fresh crop of impressionable recruits. Over time, Marcuse believed- Nobody is teaching anybody identity socialism. You guys made this term up. Believed the university could produce a new type of culture, and that culture would then spill into the larger society to infect primary education, the news media, and entertainment. Even big business, the hated capitalist class itself would succumb. He was right. Identity socialism has arrived. I'm Dinesh D'Souza for Prager University. This video was... All right, that was the trash. That, that was trash knowledge. Like all of that is just empty trash in your brain now. I'm so sorry, but thank you for joining me on Tox News. Um, I found out that my video is very, like my channel is very hard to find on YouTube uh, because of its closeness to Fox News. But hopefully someday we can change that. Like it, like it would pull up both right next to each other. That would be amazing but um the the link is in the description of the the podcast so use that to check out my wonderful face with all the sources and the videos on the corner wonderful stuff behind the curtain um what else is there uh all platforms shouts out to anchor for putting out uh, all kinds of nonsense into the airwaves and um yeah i think i have a twitter at toxinpod t-u-x-n-p-o-d and that's gonna be it that's that it's a you know that's a to-go episode and i'll be back on uh hump day for uh hopefully some militia watch it's actually one of my favorite things to do is kind of get a weekly update from militia.watch but other than that i'll figure out the rest of these uh terrible toxic segments and we'll continue watching the right as it just goes off the rails wrong thanks for joining peace